get up and do my thing. I want to get into it, man, you know. Like, I, you know I'm the man, don't you? Can I count it off? One, two, three, four. You're listening to the Church Politics Podcast with Michael Ware and Justin Gibbony, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a Christian worldview. Transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square. This is the Church Politics Podcast, hosted by the Anne Campaign. This is Michael Weir and Justin Gibbony. Uh, how are you, Justin? I'm doing well, man. It was good seeing you this weekend at the uh, Jubilee Conference, man. We got to speak to some young people, some college students about faith in the public square. And so I really enjoyed it, man. Yeah, shout out to Vince Burens uh, and Chris Carson, who uh, who run uh, CCO and the Jubilee Conference. It was just a blast. And, and we got to see a lot of friends. We saw Brother Show Barack out there. We saw Ellen Noble uh, Tish Warren, uh, just a bunch of friends of the Church Politics Podcast. We saw a bunch of our former uh, Praxis partners. So it, it was kind of a, a mini reunion. Yeah, it was a good deal. Good to see everybody. Me and uh, Show flew back to Atlanta together uh, and just had a good time, H- had a chance to talk. And it's just good to see. I mean, I-, I talk about all the time how there are some very great communicators in our rising faith leaders. And it's just good to come together in fellowship. So. Yeah, I always leave uh, Jubilee more inspired and encouraged than I was when I when I arrived. So shout out to, in particular, any listeners to the podcast that uh, that were with us out at Jubilee. We we were really grateful for you uh, for you joining us. Uh, Justin, another uh, busy week. We have uh, a new week, a new uh, candidate jumping into the race, and, and let's let's just open up talking about Bernie. So. Bernie Sanders is now officially a candidate. Uh, There was some speculation that because the party, uh, the Democratic Party had been moving left, that maybe Bernie would have considered it mission accomplished and maybe not, uh, maybe not run, maybe uh, try to play a kingmaker role. But he's he's jumping in and his early fundraising numbers show that that might have been a smart thing. He raised five point nine million dollars in the first 24 hours uh, after announcing, which uh, just about quadruples what he raised when in the first 24 hours uh, after his announcement in 2016. So it's it's a really significant, significant boost. We're seeing just across the board a bunch of money, a bunch of of fundraising able to happen early in this race. Justin, do you think that there's room for Bernie Sanders in this race? Uh, And do you think that he has a real shot of winning the Democratic nomination? Yeah, you have to say there's a shot there just because he ran so strongly last time and and, and kind of surprised a lot of people at how strong he was. And so you got to realize it's hard to walk away from a potential presidency, uh, not 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 to mention the fact that it's pretty much indisputable that the National Party did everything they could to deny him the nomination last time. They gave Clinton every advantage. And so for him, it's like, man, if I can get non-interference, maybe this time I can actually get it done. So there's a there's space there. There's a lot of overlap between the candidates. So in a way, Michael, he's al- almost going to have to make his own space and he's really going to have to fight it out with Warren and, and others. Uh, but he started off with a quote that I thought was very good. And I think it's this is just seems to be his posture in general. And, and Bernie said this. He said that as we engage with our opponents in the Democratic Party, we will forcefully uh, present our views and defend ourselves against misrepresentations. But 
Let us do our very best to engage respectfully with our Democratic opponents. Now, I did notice that he just said our Democratic opponents, but <laughs> that is kind of the spirit that he's had for a while. Right. This very civil spirit. Let's be constructive and have a real conversation about policy. I appreciate that about Bernie. I don't necessarily agree with what, what a, um, a lot of what Bernie says. I think some of it is just a little too far out and not real, real not realistic. However, he does come off as sincere to me. Now, one of the things that surprised me, Michael, was just at how many Dems, uh, at least on my timeline, were spitting like straight vitriol at Bernie. Uh, there were right. folks that were really coming at Bernie's neck. Uh, what, from what I can tell, it's really clear that he is a still a very serious annoyance to your more establishment Democrats, your your Clinton supporters. And, and the thing to me is like everybody's mad at Bernie. Not everybody. He has a lot of supporters, too. But a lot of people are mad at Bernie. And at the same time, they're embracing like all of his policies. Right. I mean, how, how is Democrat socialism all the rage and you're showing no love to the dude who started it? Any way you put it, Bernie changed the game. Right. So you have these seriously establishment candidates, whether it be Harris, Booker, whoever, who are embracing Democrat, some of the, the platform from Democrat socialism based on what Bernie did. And yet everybody's still mad at him. So I know he's in there like, is this really the thanks I get for really <laughs> changing the game and, and giving you half of your uh, platform? Yeah, that, that's a that's a good point. It's going to be interesting to see how the debates shake out and how they try and separate themselves, uh, the, the, the candidates. You know, Jamel Bowie had a very interesting column in the New York Times making the case that in 2020, it will be Bernie Sanders' foreign policy that allows him to separate from the pack. I, I'd encourage folks to read that column. Uh, Bernie actually has a foreign policy advisor who uh, comes from a, a really significant Christian family. So Matt Duss is Bernie Sanders' foreign policy advisor. Matt Matt's father was a, a missionary and uh, ran an organization that did missionary work, uh, spent some time at World Vision. And Matt's brother is also involved in Christian NGO work. The full disclosure, Matt, Matt's brother is a, is a friend. But it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic there. And Jamel Bowie talks a bit about, about Matt's role in Bernie's foreign policy. So I think that'll be That'll be an interesting piece to see if Bernie, who was you know pretty weak on foreign policy and may have had a better shot against Clinton if he had a clear foreign policy message running against his former Secretary of State, it's going to be interesting to see how how much he leans into his foreign policy credentials. Yeah, he may have to do that, like you said, to to just create some distance between him and the other people because there's going to be. You know, a lot of and this is what's a little bit frustrating already is there's a lot of jumping on the issue that seems to be uh, important at the moment. Right. Yeah. And so for me, I get that it's part of campaigns. But what do you truly believe? What's what's going to really solve some of these problems? And when we have candidates just jumping on whatever's new and kind of following behind that, I don't think we get a real sense of what they will actually do or what they've been thinking for the last you know 10 or 10 or so years. So hopefully we get more of that. But it's going to be interesting. Bernie's going to be formidable. He's somebody that you have to deal with that you're going to have to respond to uh, because he really set the tone. Yeah. Like you said, Justin, just to close out the segment, we know what Bernie believes and he's believed it at really politically inconvenient times. I mean, he was a he was a democratic socialist during the Cold War in America as 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 a politician. 
And so, you know, if authenticity and knowing at least where a candidate stands on it, on uh, on the issues is important to voters, you know, Bernie's going to have some success. <laughs> so it's it's going to be interesting to see. We're, we're recording this on Monday. Bernie will have his CNN town hall. Uh, I believe tonight uh, on Monday. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out. Feels like this field is starting to get pretty packed. We're still waiting on Beto, waiting on Biden, waiting on Michael Bennett, maybe a, maybe a couple others. But this field is starting to get faked here. And, and uh, uh, pretty soon, you know, debates are going to be coming up sooner than we think. All right. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're going to take a quick break and get back to you. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And just when we spoke in the last segment about about Bernie and the effect that he's had in bringing the party to the left, one senator uh, who's who's been around for just about as long as Bernie, who does not always feel too pulled to the left on significant issues, is Senator Diane Feinstein of California. And she was uh, in the news this week. Senator Feinstein, of course, just won re-election, probably the, the last time she'll, she'll uh, run. She has a six-year term. So she's in office feeling... Uh, as already a senior senator with a lot of power, chair of the Senate Intelligence Committee, uh, she is someone who has a lot of sway in the party and frankly doesn't, no one really has too much sway over her. Even eight and 10 year old kids, just <laughs> the Sunrise Movement that y'all may have heard of before because this was the group that put protesters in. Speaker Pelosi's office to open up Congress. Y'all might remember AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez visited these protesters and it was that drew a lot of uh, attention. Well, now these protesters were in Senator Feinstein's office pushing her to support the Green New Deal. And Senator Feinstein, in an edited video that came out, seemed to take a, a pretty stern uh, approach to to these kids, telling them that there's no way to pay for it. Uh, she told them flat out, I don't agree with what the resolution says. And she's, she also pointed out that she'd been around. As she says, I've been in the Senate for over a quarter of a quarter of a century, and I know what can pass, and I know what can't pass. Well, needless to say, the children who were urged by you know their adult chaperones here a bit were didn't really appreciate Senator Feinstein not bending to their call. And uh, one girl called Senator Feinstein to be brave. They pointed out that they were going to have to deal with the consequences of climate change in a different way than Senator Feinstein, who's uh, a lot older than, than eight and 10. But it was, it was a, it was a fascinating exchange. And the other slice of the story, Justin is, is that it was an edited video that like we've seen over the last uh, even few weeks, these edited videos, then the full clip comes out and it looks a lot different. So Senator Feinstein actually offered one of these kids an internship. Uh, she she actually walked them through a bit of the civic process. Justin, I don't know what angle you want to take this from. There's a, there's a lot to cover. Uh, we talked about the Green New Deal specifically last week, but what do you think this says about the uh, 
you know, there's so many threads here. Uh, uh, the way young kids are used in activism and sort of the way that we, we think politicians should respond to different kinds of people. Uh, what, what did you think about this, this whole exchange? Yeah, Michael, this was rich. Uh, there, there are a lot of a, a lot of different angles you could take on this one. And first, let me start with this. I'm, I, I respect uh, Senator Feinstein. Uh, she's she's been around for a reason. Uh, she's thoughtful and strategic. I, I don't. I'm not a huge fan of some of the things she does, especially these you know religious tests that she's put out there in the Judicial Committee. You know, we've pushed back on That's that right. before. So I'm not coming from a place where I'm just you know a, a rabid fan uh, at all. But I'll say this. Uh, what Feinstein did was civil, right? Uh, she had a civil conversation with some people who she disagreed with. Uh, and she pretty much told, told them that they didn't know what they were talking about. And you can be civil and do that. Now, you and I talked about the new Green Deal last episode. And I said, and I'll say again, I think it's half-baked. Uh, I don't think that anybody has a real plan to pay for it. And while we do have to take serious steps to talk about creation care and, and what we need to do about climate change, it cannot be a plan that only the 1% can comply with and that everyone else gets, gets all these false uh, dreams about having everything for free. But at the end of the day, really all that's happening is that, that, that they're getting left out of industry and they have cars that they can't use. And now they don't have, you know, reliable transportation, right? It can't be that. And so while I agree with some of the, uh, some of the things that the climate activists say, they need to think a little bit harder about how this is going to work. And that's what I heard Feinstein, you know, that's what I heard Feinstein saying. This group, they came with children. I'll get to that in a second. They came with these kids and they were using a lot of the same talking points that you just hear everywhere. But there wasn't a lot of substance outside of that. And I think they really thought that their passion would carry the day. Right. And, and passion is good. And this is an important uh, lesson for us all to learn. Passion is important. If you're an advocate, you should be passionate about what you're advocating for. But as President Kennedy said, even sincerity is subject to proof, right? You can be as passionate as you want to be. You still have to make a persuasive argument for someone to, to agree with you. And I think we got, you know, we saw in an instance where there was a lot of passion. There just wasn't a lot of persuasion or really knowledge of what was going on outside of the surface, you know, talking points that we all always hear. Something else that stuck out to me, though, Michael, was just a sense of ageism. That was coming from the Sunrise Movement uh, that I, I really thought was unnecessary. I mean, it was like Feinstein was automatically wrong simply because she was older. This connects with something that Alan Noble was saying actually during the Jubilee Conference where I sat into one of his talks uh, very quickly. He was saying that we love novelty so much. Right. We love novelty so much that we assume that something is better just because it's new or just because it's younger. Right. And in this case. People were really acting like Feinstein's 30 years of experience in the Senate was completely a negative. Right. And it's like, no, this experience means something. I even saw articles talking about, well, she needs to right. do over because she needs to listen to these kids because they're, they're <laughs> actually going to experience it. Like she said, I have grandkids. You think because she's older, she automatically doesn't care about what's going to happen in the next 20 or so years. But the idea right. and what they couldn't deal with was that you're not going to get all this stuff done in 10 years. And this whole conversation right. about, well, if you don't agree with us, then you just don't care if people die. It needs to stop. And it's just, it's just ridiculous. We have to be realistic about what can be done and the indoctrination and level of just, and, and not that it's something that we shouldn't be alarmed about, but to have kids there. And, and, and let me get to that point too, to have kids there 
you know, when you use kids to confront policymakers on very serious issues, it can come off as very manipulative, right? Because you have these kids basically saying, again, that if you don't agree, agree with me, you don't care if people die. And then when the grown up just responds to them, not even in kind, but responds to them in a serious way without disagreeing with them, then you can play victim. How could you say that to kids? How could you not agree with these kids? When at the end of the day, again, the, the passion just wasn't enough. And these kids are talking in a way and the indoctrination was so serious that it's like they're not listening to anything that she has to say. So it's not a constructive conversation. Very hesitant right. to put kids in those situations. I think Feinstein handled it in a very good way. But we do need to check this ageism. Uh, we need to check the idea that because somebody's older or they may not be alive when some of this uh, is brought to bear, that we can disrespect them and act like they don't care. I may not be in love with Senator Feinstein, but I'm not going to sit here and say that she doesn't care about climate change. I can't look at her record and do that. I can't look at her record and say that she's not uh, brave. Right. And apparently right. people did not do their research before they came into her office and said all that. So it was I liked how she handled it. I'm glad that people saw how you can handle something civilly, but be very assertive and not give into it just because uh, it's kids coming at you or it's an issue that's important. Yeah. Caitlin Flanagan wrote an excellent article in The Atlantic on this. She pointed out both the the bravery that Feinstein has displayed during her career and, and also the fact that California, the state for which she serves as senior senator, that has the most progressive, aggressive climate change laws and regulations in, in the country. And so, you know, to go to, to, to go to Feinstein's office and tell her, now maybe everybody needs to be doing more, but yeah, there's just a, there's just an imbalance there. And then I also like the point you made, Justin, just the manipulative terms of the debate. I, I mean, some of the attacks against uh, Feinstein or criticism that she was you know, too stern or that she uh, speak too authoritatively, uh, you know, some of the, some of the folks saying that let's scroll back in the timeline and see, uh, see the last time that you accused a woman of being too authoritative. I, I thought, I, I thought that Diane Feinstein can't be authoritative talking about the legislative pro process to some 10 uh, year olds. Then, then who, who can she, who can she be authoritative yeah, towards? Uh, you, you know, it's, it, it, interesting thing where just because they don't agree with Feinstein on her policy stance, that now all of a sudden we have all these different really identity attacks coming up, that she's too old, that she shouldn't have been talking to kids that way. And I, I just don't buy it. I, the, the kids didn't seem offended in, in the room. I, I think a lot of them are going to learn and grow from that process. And I think nothing shows that more than it was at the end of the conversation that one of the young people there asked if they could intern in her office. I think that's exactly the right approach young people should take. Get in the fray, learn lessons while you're there. You know, you're just you're just learning. You don't need to know everything to engage. So in some ways, that was a model of discourse. It was all the adults chirping, you know, the punditry class that I think turned into something that it it really wasn't. What an interesting scene to see that play out and all the different threads therein. All, all right, folks, we're going to talk in the next segment about uh, Robert Kraft being taken up in the sex trafficking scandal. But first, we're going to talk about North Korea and the upcoming summit. This is the Church Politics Podcast.
We're back at the Church Politics Podcast. This Wednesday and Thursday, President Trump is headed to Vietnam for his second summit with Kim Jong-un of North Korea uh, to talk about nuclear disarmament and a new treaty around nuclear weapons uh, with North Korea. President Trump on Sunday seemed to tamp down expectations that this was going to be, you know, the key breakthrough summit where, you know, at the end of it, Kim Jong-un is going to hand over all their weapons to the UN. But it has been interesting to see Trump really prioritize this relationship. And we've, we've talked in this podcast before that for all the skepticism and much of it we share of this president on the global stage, he has been able to at least pull out some perceived wins on the back end of some of these summits. I'm, I, I think of the EU trade negotiations and some of the trade deals come to the top of the list. Do you think it's it's smart to be continuing this conversation with Kim Jong-un? And do you think there's any reasonable expectation of of success? And, and what would that look like in your eyes, Justin? Yeah. So if if Trump does his homework, if Trump represents us competently uh, and somehow North Korea comes to the point where, where they can be trustworthy, then, yeah, uh, this this could be positive. However, I think there are reasonable doubts that Trump will be competent and do his homework in that conversation, that Kim, anything he says can be believed that North Korea you know, is actually going to make good on whatever promises they make. There's reason to be pessimistic about that. Uh, and even with those pe- that pessimism, I don't know that it's a bad idea uh, to, to have these conversations. One of the things that we saw and you, and you mentioned it was that, you know, he came back from the first summit, uh, he being Trump, basically like, look, they're going to, you know, they're going to uh, denuclearize, disarm. Everything is all good. This was a 100 percent win. And as many people expected, and I think we mentioned it before, too. That just didn't right. materialize, right? Not yeah. not at all. And so that's Go probably figure. right. That's probably the reason that he comes out and says, "Ah, let's manage expectations a little bit because we don't want to have that happen again." So it's important that they denuclearize, right? It's important that they're not armed to the tilt, and that North Korea is kind of held responsible for what they're doing because they're not an actor that you want to have serious military means because they're not responsible. And so I think it's always uh, good to look into how we can change that. And that's the reason that they're under such tough international sanctions, right? They have caps on imports. They have, you know, restrictions on fishing rights and all that stuff. And it's really been hard on their economy. So they may have some motivation to actually work with people, right? If we assume that they actually care about their people who are suffering, I mean, starvation and all that stuff, then they should have some motivation to talk and try to get from under these economic sanctions. This provides an opportunity to do that. It's worth the conversation. But if Trump goes in there and is not prepared and nobody can understand what his end games are and there's no trust and they're not being trustworthy, then it it could end up being a waste of time and the economic sanctions may just need to ramp up even more just to get something done. But the big questions here that everybody should be looking for once they walk out of this this summit are, you know, will North Korea denuclearize? What does that look like? Because something like that is all in the details, all in the definitions and all in the kind of, you know, how can we check up on them? You know, what kind of checks and balances are we going to have on that? And then again, will Trump represent the the U.S.'s uh, interest or the world's interest in a competent manner? That's that's what people are waiting to see. And those are the reasons that people are somewhat skeptical. Yeah. And, and, you know, even some of uh, President Trump's 
uh, team is skeptical. His director of national intelligence, uh, Dan Coates, who was a former senator uh, from Indiana before he took this role, uh, he told Congress last month that North Korea is unlikely to surrender its nuclear weapons. There has been talk in recent weeks that in part because of this and because of Coates' willingness to communicate the intelligence community's assessment of things that might run counter to what President Trump uh, wishes the facts were, he, he might want to remove Coates. And so that's something to watch in this whole context. If, if Trump isn't happy with how the summit plays out, does he just switch up the chairs uh, a bit and remove his current director of national uh, intelligence? But I'm interested to see how this goes. I, I think, uh, you know, it, it's important that we're talking with leaders like this. I remember back in 2008 during the presidential debates when Barack Obama, then Senator Barack Obama, said that we should be talking with leaders like this, that he was sort of roundly criticized. And at least in this instance, in this particular case, a Republican president is taking that that approach and having diplomatic lines open, I think is very important. So we'll see how this summit plays out, Justin. It's going to be interesting. I would also mention that, you know, another reason why people are skeptical is just because denuclearization just seems to go against the culture of North Korea and the culture of its leader, right? Right. To denuclearize would take away his ability to make threats on people. You know, it would just leave him without everything that he uses to speak on the international stage and to have people hear him. And so, unfortunately, I don't think he cares as much about his people as he does about the ability to say, hey, I have big guns and I may use them. Yeah, absolutely right. Let's close out the conversation there. We're going to take one more quick break. When we get back, let's talk about Robert Kraft. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back with the Church Politics Podcast, and Justin, last week, Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, you know, very successful business and wealthy businessman, is now facing charges of uh, soliciting prostitution as part of a large crackdown that took place in Florida. Now, Robert Kraft, who's 77 years old, is among more than a hundred people that were police uh, have strong suspicions of and evidence against that were a part of this really sex trafficking prostitution ring in Florida day spas and massage parlors. Police said Kraft visited the Orchids of Asia Day Spa in Jupiter, Florida twice, and apparently there's uh, explicit video footage confirming this fact. Uh, obviously, you know, we've talked on the podcast before about how sex trafficking and prostitution generally is a problem in this country and around the world. I was just struck by the fact that in addition to the the human depravity on display here, it's it's only accentuated to me by the fact that I, I would I would imagine that Robert Kraft, who had, I believe, had a has a girlfriend didn't need to go to this parlor to to have sex. And yet it was something about the the cheap consumerism of it that attracted him. To find a billionaire in a day spa it just just adds a, a another layer to this that I think is 
as Christians, we need to spend some time thinking about the level to which sin will will bring you. Justin, what do you think? Obviously, this is a policy issue. This is a law enforcement crackdown on sex trafficking. We've seen an increase in sex trafficking prosecutions uh, really over the last decade as DOJ and law enforcement has become more uh, better equipped to tackle these issues. But then there's obviously this clear, you know, morality question of what's going on here. You know, what, what was your reaction? Yeah, I think you partially hit you hit it on the head in that. Yes, I'm glad to see this crackdown. I'm glad to see the law working and being innovative and kind of cracking down on sex trafficking. Uh, but this isn't an issue that's going to be solved by law enforcement or politics alone. Right. It's a deeper cultural and spiritual conversation that needs to be had. The first thing, though, is, you know, just prayers for the women that are caught up in, uh, caught up in this. It's just some really sad situations out there. Uh, prayers for Robert Kraft, too. Um, not that he shouldn't uh, be held accountable. I, I think he will be uh, to some extent. But just hoping that the, you know, the social sanction and the humiliation that comes with all this can maybe cause some self-reflection and may maybe cause him to turn away from some of this stuff. Uh, we know that sex trafficking is it's what a, a hundred billion dollar business globally. There are four point million people that are s- stuck in this trade. Um, just so you know, sex trafficking really involves the recruitment and transfer of a person through force, uh, fraud or coercion for the purpose of commercial sexual exploitation. And in this particular case, at this particular um, massage parlor, the women had been brought in from China under a whole bunch of misrepresentations about the, the opportunities they would have, about what they would be doing. They're brought to these massage parlors and forced to sell their bodies. Many of them lived at this spa and weren't allowed to leave the spa like that is slavery. Right. And it's going on right, you know, right under our nose. Uh, one of the ladies I was reading the article, one lady who was part of the sex trade for a while said that, you know, on, on a lot of days she was forced to sleep with 21 men in six hours. Uh, something else to think about is that immigrant women especially are vulnerable because of the desperation of their circumstances in many of these cases, which is another reason why the conversation about immigration, the conversation about open borders has to be a real conversation. You know, that's why when we talk about just open borders, that's not a policy and that's not responsible. We have to have a comprehensive reform that protects people like this because it is part of the conversation that we need to have. You know, a lot of these women are unjustly indebted to these pimps and are never able to get from under that debt by design. And so it's just a system that perpetually keeps them in a very, very vulnerable uh, situation. Most of us couldn't imagine having to live a life like that. And when we look at the numbers, right, that 4.8 million people, there's a serious demand. And when you have a demand that high, what that means for us is that we have family members. We have people in our churches who are soliciting and are taking part in this trade. And so we need to be very clear about that. And we need to make our voices heard about that. You know, I even talk to my friends who, who go to strip clubs, which, you know, don't not to condemn them, because that's something at one point uh, long ago that I did. But I even talked to them about how that could be a connection to the sex trade and that some of the women there are not women that want to be there. And I think when people understand it and don't see this as just fun and enjoyment for themselves, when they put another element to it, they can hopefully see it, see it a little bit differently. But we have to deal with the demand for this sex work. Uh, the mainstream, we have to think about things like the mainstreaming of pornography, 
the permissiveness of society. How do we deal with sex? How do we deal with self-denial? which is really something that this, you know, modernity does not want to talk about. And how do we deal with sin generally? You know, we like to push the conversation about sin away. But the people who put these women in these positions are extremely sinful. And we need to deal with that in order to deal with the fact that humans can even perpetuate something like this. Right. So we need to we need to have those conversations. It's going to be bigger than politics, but we do need politics and law enforcement to to get going and kind of have crackdowns like this. Yeah, I think those are those are powerful words. I, I've been you know encouraged a bit to to hear these these conversations happen more than they have in the past. Uh, but we need to continue talking about it. Justin, we're about to land the plane on this episode. I'm going to turn it to you for any last comments. But before I do that, I just want to point people's attention to the fact that even with a divided Congress, we're going to have an interesting month, I think, in Congress. Uh, Medicare for All is going to be rolled out this week, uh, legislation. Mitch McConnell is looking at forcing a vote on the Green New Deal as early as this week, but almost certainly in March. On Monday, today, the day we're recording, Ben Sass's bill for medical attention to be provided to infants who were who survived an abortion is going to be brought up for a debate. And so even as we have a presidential campaign that's already underway, uh, Congress is still asserting itself as they should, and important debates are going to be had that Christians should be a part of. And obviously, on the Church Politics Podcast, we're going to do everything we can to make sure you have the information you need to participate in in those debates. But I did want to flag that for folks' attention, that, that these issues are pretty quickly coming down coming down the pipeline. Justin, do you have any, any final words for our listeners? Yeah, sure. I just want to leave them with two challenges. Uh, one for Democrats and one for Republicans. Uh, for for my for our Democratic listeners, I would challenge you to speak up about late term abortions. Challenge the people around you to explain their position on that, because you'll find that most people, a lot of people, haven't thought it through all the way. But do your homework and have a real conversation, not an angry, you know, yelling, uh, accu- uh, you know, accusation filled conversation, but a conversation to bring up some points about why that is not okay. And on the on the Republican side, I would say bring up a conversation about challenging the president and the administration on the treatment of immigrants. And that's not to say that you have to completely agree with open borders and all the stuff that you hear. But how are we going to hold them accountable for the treatment of people at the border? And what are we going to do to say, hey, we're more interested in human flourishing you know, than our own interest and, and just scaremongering? So I would leave you with those two challenges. I think those are two things that. Uh, Christians on both sides can bring up to better their their side of the conversation. And so I'd, I'd love to see people start doing that a little more. Yeah, I appreciate that. And I, I actually meant to add Congressman Joaquin Castro's legislation inserting the House into uh, preventing the national emergency declaration about the border wall is also another piece of legislation that we'll be moving this week uh, and, and in the coming weeks. And so, again, Christians will have an opportunity to speak out and be uh, in both issues that Justin just raised. All right, folks, this was a good a good episode. Enjoyed talking with you as always, Justin. And to our listeners, thank you as always. We'll be back with you next week. This is the Church Politics Podcast. 
Thanks, y'all. Y'all take care. This is the groove. Tell me, can you handle it? I'm scolding the ways of runaway slaves. I'm brave. I'm unchained. I'm Frederick Douglass with a fame.